Well, it's a joy for Darlene and me to be here this morning. I, uh, I can't believe it's my first time here. Uh, Lance Quinn and I have been close friends. He's one of my probably two or three best friends in the world. Uh, and I've known him for, I think, nearly 40 years. When he first came to work at Grace to You, on a Saturday he was working there and he got locked in um, with the alarm turned on. And he, he moved around in the building, and it set off the alarm. And he was brand new. He was like a week in our ministry. And um, uh, so I got, a, I got a call from the sheriff who came to answer the alarm. And he said, uh, we have a guy here who has set off your alarm and uh, want to know if he's really an employee of yours. And I said, what's his name? And he said, and maybe you didn't know this about Lance, his first name is Stuart. So he said, it's Stuart Quinn. And I said, don't know him. He said, okay. <laughs> he said, we'll take care of it. And then I, then I heard Lance in the background going, no, no, it's Lance, it's Lance. <laughs> so I told the sheriff he didn't have to arrest him. But So I've always held that over Lance, that I saved him from arrest at one point. I know you're going to miss him. You have Paul Twist coming with his mellifluous... English accent, you're going to love that, going from an Arkansas accent to a, a really classy English accent. I hope you can adapt. Well, the second reading this morning was from Psalm 13, and you may wonder why I chose that. It's because it goes so well with the passage I want to speak about. What I want to look at this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, which reads almost like the Apostle Paul's commentary on that psalm. He asks the same question, how long, O Lord? And he gives the same answer, because I've trusted in the Lord. And so I want to do that. My, my mind was drawn to this passage this week because on Monday I received word that a, another good friend of mine and his family were involved in a serious automobile accident where they were traveling more than 400 miles from home, away from home. And my my friend woke up in the hospital three days later to learn that his wife and his eldest son had been instantly killed when an oncoming car inexplicably crossed the double yellow line and plowed head-on into the car that this family were traveling in. My friend is a bivocational pastor who works a full-time job during the week, and he serves his church without remuneration when his work hours are over. And the whole thing is a profound tragedy. It's the kind of thing you can never truly and fully recover from until we all get to heaven. And so I've found myself repeatedly quoting verses like Romans 5 verse 3, suffering produces endurance. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 where Paul says to be steadfast and faithful in all your persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring because he says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And 2 Timothy 1.8, share in suffering in the gospel. This becomes a running theme actually in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And chapter 4, verse 5, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. 
Now, to be clear, I want you to notice that most of the suffering that is described in the passages that I just read involves suffering for righteousness' sake. The New Testament portrays persecution and worldly opposition as the expected consequences of a faithful life. And if you are a true believer, and if you are faithful to the Word of God, you will experience suffering. Scripture guarantees us that. And much of the suffering you experience will be in the form of deliberate persecution at the hands of worldly people. You will be called on to endure weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities on the way to glory. That's how Paul described his own experience with those exact words. And it's one of the paradoxical realities of the Christian life. Suffering is a prelude to glory. That's one of the in a way, that's, it's comforting to, to know that. If you suffer, it doesn't mean that God has cast you aside or abandoned you to your suffering. The truth is all of us are in the same boat, different degrees perhaps, but we all will experience suffering in this life. Peter wrote two epistles to saints who had been scattered from one end of the empire to the other because of persecution. Rome had ransacked Jerusalem, and both Jews and Christians had been sent into exile. Many of them had suffered the loss of everything they owned. They were living in strange lands. Their lives were still daily in jeopardy, and their suffering was almost unspeakable. And near the end of that first epistle, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But he says, resist him, be firm in your faith. And now listen to this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's some kind of encouragement, isn't it? And there is a sense, maybe, in which misery loves company. It's some small comfort when we suffer to know that we're not suffering alone. God has not turned his back on, on me in, a, in some particular singular punitive way as if this is payback for some secret or unknown evil that I'm guilty of. The truth is all Christians suffer. But the next verse, 1 Peter 5.10, is the key. Peter goes on to say, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see what Peter's saying there? God has a plan and a purpose in our suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.17, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what makes our pain bearable, if we believe that, if we cling to that. We know that God is doing something good and something gracious in our suffering. More than that, he's doing something glorious with it. Suffering is simply the pathway to glory. Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's an amazing promise. The glory is eternal. The suffering, Peter says, is just for a short time. And he's bringing us by his grace to glory. And along the way, Scripture says, he will himself 
restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He will do everything necessary to uphold you and conform you to the image of Christ. But remember, that is part of conforming us to the image of Christ. Christ suffered. And Scripture says you have been called to suffer because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's 1 Peter 2.21. And if you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then the instrument by which God will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you must involve suffering. Because without sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death, you won't be fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 9 and 10. In fact, he puts into uh, as few words as possible the true heart's desire of every regenerate believer. It is the very essence of faith to have this desire, in Paul's words, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I need to clarify something about this because as soon as I say suffering is the pathway to glory, there are some who will hear that and think, well, that's not so revolutionary. That's not really unique to Christianity. Lots of religions teach that, that the price of nirvana is self-denial, the, the cost of true happiness is stoicism, or the key that unlocks the portal to heaven is a affliction or austerity or asceticism or abstinence from, of some kind, as if your suffering could somehow earn you a place in glory. And that's not what Scripture is saying at all. Suffering is not meritorious. You don't secure your own eternal wel welfare, even in part by your own self-denial or by the infliction of pain. Our miseries are not atonement for our sin. And in fact, this is the central truth of the gospel. Christ's suffering earned glory for his people. Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus' suffering was the price of our salvation and it's paid in full. His death paid the penalty of our sins. His righteousness is all the righteousness we need for a right standing with God. And that's what Paul was saying in the text I just quoted from Philippians 3.9, where he says that he desires to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but with the righteousness that we obtain by faith. He's talking there about the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to our account. And because Christ's righteousness is better than any righteousness you and I could ever achieve on our own, his perfect righteousness, from start to finish, where he never disobeyed a single, a single element of the law of God, it's perfect righteousness, and that's what we need. We could never attain a righteousness like that on our own. So, you might ask then, why is it necessary for us to suffer on the way to glory? And in the text we're going to look at this morning, Paul answers that question in detail with an amazing testimony from his own experience. 
So I hope you've turned there. 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll work our way through verses 1 through 10. And here's the context. This is the, the Apostle Paul's account of his thorn in the flesh. We don't know the nature of the thorn. It was a, some kind of persistent affliction or, or a protracted trial of some unspecified sort. He doesn't describe what it is. Some think it was a troublesome individual, uh, and it may well have been because Paul refers to the thorn in his flesh in verse 7 as a messenger of Satan to harass me, as if he's speaking of a person. And indeed, that may be what it was. There were plenty of people like Hymenaeus and Philetus, the original hyper-preterist heretics, or, or Demas, the the worldly co-worker of Paul's who was with Paul for a long time but forsook the faith when the cost of following Christ became too costly. Maybe Demas's worldly shenanigans or his half-hearted faith were like a thorn in Paul's side. And then again in 2 Timothy 4.14, he mentions Alexander the coppersmith who he says did me great harm and he says the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then, of course, there were the, the Judaizers, these heretics who followed Paul around the empire, sowing tares of false doctrine wherever Paul had brought the gospel to the Gentiles. So maybe the thorn Paul talked about was their ringleader or the group as a whole, uh, true messengers of Satan if there ever were any because they corrupted the gospel so badly. Whatever or whoever Paul had in mind it very well could have been any of those people or someone else in the same vein. S. Lewis Johnson suggested it could have been all of them combined and that the thorn that tortured Paul was a constant awareness that even the people closest to him, people who had sat under his ministry for years, didn't seem to understand the message clearly or believe it earnestly. So many of them fell away, and at the end of, the, of his life, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Everybody else had forsaken him. Any preacher can understand how that would be like a thorn in your side. Uh, most commentators lean toward the view that Paul's thorn was some kind of physical affliction of some kind because he calls it a thorn in the flesh. So all kinds of suggestions have been made that it was maybe malaria or ophthalmia or epilepsy or malta fever or migraine headaches or gout or kidney stones or sore teeth. Some of us, the older you get, you have more of those. And you understand how that could seem like a thorn in the flesh. Uh, Tertullian, the great one of the church fathers, thought it was a chronic earache. Where he got that, I don't know, but... Chrysostom said, no, it wasn't an earache, it was the headache. One author took it literally saying that Paul must have had a splinter that got abscessed. And since Paul doesn't describe it, he doesn't talk about anything physical or specific about this thorn in the flesh, it's really not important for us to know what it was. That's not the point. And in fact, it seems to me that Paul here is being deliberately vague so that it's a waste of time really to speculate about the specific nature of what was this ordeal he was suffering. The truth is it's not important. We just know he was suffering and it was a chronic affliction and a continual torment to him, uh, some tenacious enemy or or a persistent frustration of some sort that troubled him continually and unrelentingly so much that he had repeatedly prayed for relief from it. 
Now, let me expand the context a little bit for you here. Paul is under assault in Corinth. He had founded this church, and these heretics had come in later and misled lots of the people, questioning Paul's authority. His character and his apostleship had been openly questioned. And people in the Corinthian fellowship had become confused about whether Paul, is Paul really someone whose teaching and leadership are trustworthy? And that, that question was undermining the gospel in Corinth. The church was flirting with apostasy. And on top of all the problems that Paul had addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians, the church is now teetering on the brink of abandoning the truth altogether. The church that Paul had founded. And it consisted largely of people whom he knew personally. Paul himself had brought them the gospel. He had led them to Christ, mostly out of pagan backgrounds, in what was one of the most debauched cities in the world. He was their spiritual father. He also held apostolic authority over this church. And yet, in his absence, these false teachers had had come along, and these were men who falsely claimed that they had an even higher kind of apostolic authority for themselves. In verse 11, Paul refers to them sarcastically as super apostles. That's the ESV. The NAS says the most eminent apostles. But Paul isn't really talking about the most eminent of the legitimate 12 apostles. He's making a sarcastic reference to what these false teachers claimed about themselves that they were super apostles. The Greek word has the connotation of someone who is haughty and self-important and scornful of others. This expression, super apostles, actually captures Paul's disdain for these men and uses the same expression in chapter 11, verse 5. These were false teachers who had moved into the Corinthian church. They were teaching error and undermining the church's confidence in Paul's leadership and the message they had heard from Paul. And so the whole book of 2 Corinthians is dominated by Paul's defense of his own apostolic authority. And he's doing this not for selfish or self-aggrandizing reasons. It's not because this hurt his, his personal feelings. He's doing it because an attack on Paul's authority would open the door for heretics and false doctrines, and, and that was a threat to the very life of this already troubled church in Corinth. And so throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostolic credentials, and it's a self-defense that's unusual for Paul. He keeps saying, I don't like to boast, because he didn't, but he had to defend himself, and his self-defense reaches a kind of climax here in chapter 12. So let me read the first 12 verses of this chapter and understand the context. Paul has already spent several chapters answering these relentless attacks against him, defending his character, reminding the Corinthians what they already knew about Paul, refuting his opponent's false accusations and, and explaining his own motives and his ministry style and defending all that. And, and again, all this is very foreign to Paul's usual style. He does not like to talk about himself in any way that even hints of a boast. He was a humble man. He did not like talking about himself, but in order to defend the true gospel, he has to defend his apostolic credentials. 
And these false teachers had evidently boasted that they had done great works and had stunning revelations from God, and they said that what God had revealed to them and what they had to teach the Corinthians surpassed anything Paul could ever claim. And so Paul here is answering that argument. And I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 12 and read through verse 12. Here's Paul's response to the super apostles' claims about their own dreams and visions and private revelations. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me Then he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been committed, commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, here's what's going on. Paul has been forced to display his own apostolic credentials, to boast about his spiritual qualifications against his own wishes and contrary to his normal style. He recounts for the Corinthians this amazing sacred privilege that he was given He was caught up into heaven, and it's an event that Paul talks about nowhere else in Scripture. In fact, he says very little about it here. He he introduces the subject, and then when you just want to hear about his trip to heaven, he turns to another almost paradoxical subject, this troublesome affliction that he suffered in an earthly way, you know? Rather than talking about what he experienced in heaven, he tells us what he suffered on earth. And he uses this contrast to make a significant point about the sufficiency of God's grace. And in fact, grace, notice, is the theme that permeates Paul's testimony in this passage. As he moves through these first 10 verses, he talks about three significant gifts that he received from the gracious hand of God, three totally different kinds of gifts But when you knit them together like this, they give us a wonderful lesson about the sufficiency of God's grace. So let's look at these three gifts in order. Gift number one is paradise. Paradise. Paul was 
transported, it says, into the third heaven. And that is a reference to paradise, the abode of God, the dwelling place of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The third heaven, it's called that because the first heaven is the atmospheric heaven, the firmament, earth's atmosphere. That's the first heaven. It's called heaven in Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8. The second heaven then is outer space, the realm of the stars and the planets. That is called heaven in Genesis 22, verse 17, and a host of other passages that speak of the stars of heaven. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is the place where God dwells. In 1 Kings 8, verse 27, Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So literally the expression in the Hebrew there is the heavens and the heaven of the heavens cannot contain you. So what all of this is saying is that the third heaven is uniquely the domain and dwelling place of God. And yet, even that can't contain him. Paul was taken there. He was caught up, it says, into paradise, carried to the very throne room of God where he saw and heard things that it's not possible to describe. And Paul says it's not even lawful to try. This was an experience virtually unparalleled in human history. It's an honor that, as far as we know, was equaled only by the experience of the Apostle John, who years after this on the Isle of Patmos had a similar vision, and it's perhaps similar to the experience of Isaiah, who says in Isaiah chapter 6 that in the year King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. He's describing heaven there, and Ezekiel also describes a, a vision of heaven. Paul's experience is so vivid and so real that he says in verse 2, he didn't know if it was in the body or out of the body. He might have been literally transported to heaven, or this might have been a vision or some kind of trance-like out-of-the-body experience. Even Paul wasn't sure himself, but he tells us that the experience was intense and it was authentic. This is not a hazy or dreamy vision of heaven. It's a true and genuine revelation of the person of Christ to the Apostle Paul in person. Now, as a young Christian, I read this passage, I remember reading it, and it did not occur to me immediately that Paul is describing his own experience in the first five verses, because he, he describes it in the third person. I know a man in Christ, he says, and I know that this man was caught up, and he heard things, this man, third person, all the way through five verses. But make no mistake, this is Paul's own experience, and he makes that clear and even explains why he gives his testimony in the third person like that. Verse 5, on behalf of this man, third person, I will boast, but on my own behalf, first person, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. So in other words, when he's got a story to tell that honors himself and exalts his experience, he will tell it in the third person. But when he has something to say about his weakness, he shifts to the first person. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, 
If he told this story in a boasting way, if he vividly described all the details of this heavenly experience, he wouldn't be guilty of lying or exaggerating, but he's restraining himself from doing that and from speaking in the first person. It's just not saying all that he could about this experience, just so that no one would think too highly of him so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, he wanted people to judge him according to what they see him do and what they hear him say. He's not looking to be like these false apostles, to be placed on a pedestal because of some story he told about the special revelation that was given to him. And in fact, Paul stays as far away from boasting as possible, giving very scant details about this trip into the third heaven. It's not like the people today who, who claim they went to heaven, and, and the first thing they do is write a book about it. <laughs> but his testimony makes a refreshing contrast with that. I don't know if you've ever seen the kinds of claims people make on charismatic television channels nowadays. It's pretty common. There's just no shortage of people today who claim they've been transported to heaven, and they come back, and, and invariably they make a career out of the going around on the speaking circuits recounting in dramatic detail what they supposedly saw in heaven, and it's all kinds of fanciful and ridiculous stuff. If you put all of those accounts together, and in fact, I did this a few years ago when I was working on John MacArthur's book on heaven and compared some of these accounts, and find, you find that there are massive contradictions and fanciful claims. No two people who claim they've went to heaven actually saw the same thing. So anyway, it's shameful that Supposedly, Christian publishers and broadcasters confuse people by giving publicity to obvious lies like that. But notice what Paul says about his experience. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And beyond that, he gives not a single detail about what heaven was like, or how long he was there, or who or what he saw, or any of the other kinds of details that you really would like to hear from him the things that are so prominent in all the accounts you hear on the Christian celebrity circuit. He doesn't give any of that. He doesn't even want to talk about it. Verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Verse 6, I refrain from boasting so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He doesn't want the Corinthians to revere him because he experienced supernatural things. That's what the false teachers were asking for. But Paul's saying, if you honor me at all, it should be for what you see in my life and what you hear from my lips when I teach. His experience in paradise was actually a sacred experience, but also an intensely personal one for Paul. The only reason he even mentions the story is to demonstrate that he could, if he wanted to, easily top all of the claims that these super apostles were making. A trip to paradise was a, a gracious and, and almost unspeakably great gift to Paul. But what he intends to focus on when he gives his testimony here is not that spectacular vision of heaven. He just brings it up here and then he drops the subject. And just when he gets to the point when, you know, the 21st century charismatic celebrity wants to start giving you all kinds of fanciful stories, 
Paul says the things he saw and heard are impossible and impermissible to describe in human language. And he leaves the whole subject behind and he never mentions it again, ever, in any of his writings. And what Paul ends up actually boasting about is a completely different kind of gift. Gift one, paradise. Gift number two, pain. Verse seven. So Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Notice of all that the word revelations in verse 7 is plural, which is a subtle clue, but it suggests that the experience Paul describes in verse 2 wasn't even just a one-time event in his experience. He seems to have had multiple revelations of a similar caliber, but he doesn't recount them for us. He He doesn't count them either. He doesn't tell us how many there are. He just mentions that they were plural, and now he is finished talking about visions and revelations. No more from him about it. And I don't blame him because Paul had a perpetual reminder not to be puffed up about his spiritual privileges. It was this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. By the way, the the word translated thorn in the Greek is skalops. It signifies something very sharp pointed, usually of wood. It it was in classical Greek, this word was often used to speak of a stake, like a tent peg, like a stake for a palisade, a big stake, or or a pointed post from a picket fence. Or it could denote a very large splinter or a thorn. I'm inclined to think the word thorn is the right idea. It's the closest thing to what Paul had in mind. The size of this sharp object isn't nearly as important as the severity of the pain it inflicts. Clearly, he's he's not describing some kind of fatal impalement here. This is just a constant, sharp, vexing affliction that feels kind of like a slow torture. If you've ever had an ingrown toenail, you get the idea, I think. Paul chooses this word, scallops, precisely because it evokes a wincing notion of pain. And again, it's pointless, I think, to speculate about what it was or who it was, but the language Paul uses gives us a few clues about how troublesome this trial was. It's a pain that never left him, and I I think there are some facts here worth pointing out. First of all, the phrases, a thorn in the flesh and a messenger of Satan, those are parallel phrases. And the choice of words strongly suggests that the first phrase is simply figurative, a thorn in the flesh. I don't think it's a literal thorn. I don't think it's a splinter or a wooden stake driven into his body. If he meant this to be taken literally, I think he would have described something about the thorn or how it got there or what measures he took to have it removed or whatever. But he doesn't treat this as a literal expression. And in fact, reading a phrase like this in any kind of normal prose we wouldn't generally expect it to carry a a literal meaning, especially when it's coupled as it is with this, a positive phrase, a messenger of Satan. The thorn itself, whatever it is, is a satanic communique. And so 
we should read this first expression, thorn in the flesh, as a figure of speech, very much like the, the one Jesus used with Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, where he says, you know, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus, of course, was not saying that Satan literally asked for permission just to grind Peter to powder and put his ashes through a sieve. But what he was saying is that the devil intended to subject Peter to such a grueling test that when it was done, Peter would feel as if he had spiritually been forced through a strainer. And that's what it felt like. Paul here is using a similar kind of metaphor. He's describing some kind of satanic provocation or annoyance or an affliction. It's not an actual thorn or a splinter of wood. It's an evil irritation that comes directly from Satan that has deeply painful and potentially incapacitating consequences. And because this entails a a messenger of Satan to harass, it does seem to me likely that this is a, a spiritual attack rather than a physical one. I don't think it has anything to do with Paul's eye problems or ingrown toenails or anything like that. But this is such a personal attack from Satan himself and such a relentless bother to Paul that it causes him constant, unremitting pain of some, fo- some kind. So, now if you're paying attention and following my outline, you might want me to stop right there because we're on point two of a three-point outline and we're supposed to be talking about the second of a list of three gracious gifts that God gave to Paul. The first was paradise, that makes sense. The second, we said, is pain, and now we see that this thorn, whatever it was, is the source of Paul's pain. So was Paul's pain a provocation from Satan, or was it a gracious gift from God? And the answer is both. Satan meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And here's a little secret, that is true of every vexing problem the powers of darkness ever cause for you. Whatever is meant for evil, God employs it for good. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. Most of you have it memorized. And you see that same truth as a theme that runs throughout Scripture, it's the lesson of Joseph's life and the, and the triumphant culmination of his own brother's attempts to get rid of him forever after he has ascended to the second highest position of power in Egypt. In Genesis 45, 8, Joseph tells his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then he says in Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So, in fact, think about this. Even the most grossly evil act that was ever carried out under the scheming of the devil and by the hands of wicked men was used by God for the greatest good in all of time and eternity. Acts 2.23, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So was that an evil act or was it the fulfillment of God's good purpose? And the answer again, both. So was Paul's thorn in the flesh 
a messenger of Satan or was it a gift from God? It was both. Verse 7 of our text, Paul writes, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And he uses the passive voice. It was given to me. Who gave it? Well, clearly Satan did in the sense that Satan or a messenger of Satan was the immediate cause. That's the instrumental agent that afflicted Paul. And yet we know, don't we, that God was the ultimate cause. As as you see in Peter's case and in Job's case in the Old Testament, Satan could not afflict a saint of God without God's express permission. Satan had to ask to sift Peter like wheat. He had to ask in order to trouble Job. He could not have afflicted the apostle Paul with a thorn in the flesh unless God bid him to do it. And God would never have permitted such a thing without a good reason. And by that, I mean it had to be something good for Paul, an expression of God's grace and favor wrapped in the appearance of adversity. All of our trials are like that, by the way, all of them. And furthermore, uh, Scripture expressly teaches that. Our sufferings always have a gracious purpose. Whenever we suffer unjustly, Scripture says, we ought to see that as a gift from God. James 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Romans 5, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. 1 Peter 2, 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. To suffer for Christ's sake or or for righteousness' sake is a great blessing. It's a gift from God. 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, when we've done nothing wrong to bring about evil consequences but we suffer anyway, we should welcome those sufferings the way we would welcome a gift because that is what it is. And that word given in verse 7 of our text signifies, I believe, that Paul himself had come to regard this thorn in his flesh as a favor, a gift. It's the very word you would use to describe a gift that is given with the intention of honoring someone. It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son himself uses that word in Luke 15, 12, when he says to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Make it a gift. Gift it to me. And it's the same word translated put just 10 verses later where it says the father put a ring on his hand. He gifted him with that ring as an honor. It's the word translated give or given in all of these biblical phrases. Freely you received, freely give. Ask and it will be given to you. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And it's also the word Satan used in Matthew 4 when he took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and all of their glory. And he said to to Jesus, all these I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. All of those expressions talk about basically a gift offered to honor someone. So by using this word, I think Paul signifies that he had come to view this thorn in his flesh as a gift from the gracious hand of God. And it was just that because it had a good purpose. Paul even understood what the purpose was in this case. He even repeats it twice in verse 7, once at the beginning and once at the end in that same verse. And so the news that Satan was afflicting, Paul comes to to us sandwiched between these two statements of God's goodwill towards the Apostle Paul. Paul says twice that the purpose of the thorn was to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so that Paul wouldn't become puffed up. God permitted Satan to embed some kind of spiritual splinter under the apostle's skin, and it became a perpetual reminder of the absolute sufficiency of God's grace, as well as a motive for Paul to stay humble. And now Paul says in verse 8, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And the word translated pleaded there is a potent one. It signifies an urgent, importunate, pressing appeal for relief. It's the same same word that's translated begged in Matthew 8.34 when Jesus sent the swine over the cliff into the water and Matthew says all the city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him they begged him to leave their region. Pleading. It's it's an urgent sort of appeal. Also, the same word is used to describe the, the pleading of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue in Mark 5, 23, where he falls at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. That's how the word is translated there. Saying, my little daughter is the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So it's the most, it's the most urgent, heartfelt kind of pleading and Paul's threefold repetition of this prayer is also significant, I think. According to Matthew 26, 44, Jesus himself repeated his prayer in Gethsemane for the cup to pass three times. This is reminiscent of that. And just as the cup did not pass from Jesus, the thorn in the flesh did not depart from Paul. But instead, he received a very specific kind of answer from the Lord. And incidentally, when Paul says in verse 8 that he pleaded with the Lord about this, I think he's talking here about the Lord Jesus. Because Paul never uses that expression, the Lord, to refer to anyone but Jesus. So here's an example of a prayer addressed directly and personally to Jesus. It's proof of his deity And it's also proof that he not only makes intercession for the saints, he also receives and answers their prayers. And here's an interesting fact. Whoever decides what words to make red in red-letter Bibles apparently agrees that Jesus is the one Paul is praying to, because in my Bible anyway, the answer Paul receives comes in red letters. Not that that means anything. That's That's the interpreter's but he agrees with my view of this as well. This is Jesus answering Paul, who prayed to him. Anyway, the answer Paul reveals unveils for us gift number three. If you're following this, the first gift was paradise. The second was pain. Now third, power. Power. Here's the ultimate proof 
that Jesus is the one Paul is praying to. Look at the answer in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Who's speaking here? Whose power is this? My power. Paul immediately answers that question for us when he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we don't know how Paul received the answer to this prayer. It might have been through an audible voice or a dream or a vision or through some means involving the apostolic sign gifts uh, because those gifts were in operation with Paul especially. He's an apostle. But the truth is it's not important for us to know how Paul got this message or he would have told us. If it was through some kind of apostolic gift or special revelation, it's, this is not, Paul is not describing a means by which you and I can hear from Christ. We hear from him in his word, in his written word. But how Paul got this is, again, not what's important here. What is important is the message he got. My power, Jesus says, reaches perfection in weakness. Now, one of the hardest things in the world is to get Christians to embrace and believe that truth. But what Paul says here is consistently set forth as the divine strategy. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise, to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But the best part is the opening phrase of the answer Paul got. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, a thoughtless person reading this might think that Christ heard Paul's prayer and the answer he gave him was basically a no. Paul himself didn't see it that way. And we need to be wise in discerning how God answers our prayers. Yes is not necessarily the answer we always want. And no doesn't necessarily mean the Lord has refused to answer our request. You remember how the Israelites prayed for meat rather than manna in the wilderness? God told them yes, and then he sent diseased quails for their food. Psalm 106 verses 14 and 15, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. That's scripture. Sometimes God in his wrath will grant a prayer request to the letter. But sometimes God in his love says no to our specific request so that he can give us something better. And that's the case here. Would you rather have the absence of the thorn or an abundance of divine grace? And the grace in this case comes in the form of empowerment. And Jesus' answer to Paul's prayer is, is stated here in a poetic structure called a, a chiasmus, meaning that the form of the second phrase is an inverted mirror of the first phrase. It's a common literary device in Scripture, especially in Hebrew poetry, and it sheds some light on the meaning of this promise. So the word order in the Greek goes like this, sufficient for you my grace, my power in weakness is perfected. That's the actual word order in the original text. So the word sufficient 
mirrors the word perfect. The word you mirrors weakness, and the word grace mirrors power. And that means the grace Jesus is speaking of here is embodied in the power of Christ, which is unleashed in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so while Jesus didn't answer Paul's prayer in precisely the way Paul asked, he gave him something better. Grace sufficient for every need. Any doubt about whether Paul would find strength to fulfill his calling was therefore removed from him, and and that was far more of a comfort to the Apostle Paul than the removal of the thorn would have been. And so the very thing that caused him pain became for Paul the reminder of Christ's power unleashed in his life, and therefore it was a reason to rejoice. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Content with all of that, if you can imagine that. Why? Because, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That is an amazing statement. We think of contentment in terms of having what we want, and, you know, getting all of our wishes fulfilled and enjoying all the comforts and conveniences of life. To us, that's contentment. But for Paul, contentment meant merely having sufficient grace and the power of the Lord to sustain him. And so he could make this remarkable affirmation, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Not one thing in that list that we would ever naturally associate with contentment. But Paul had a truly Christ-centered worldview. In the King James Version, verse 9 says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities. The New American Standard Bible is similar. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. And that word rather is actually a literal translation of the word in the Greek text. Rather. Rather than what? What is Paul saying here? To paraphrase, here's what he means. Rather than ask a fourth time for the removal of this splinter, I will, Paul says, with supreme gladness, glory in my weaknesses. And at the end of this passage, think about it. It's very much like Psalm 13 in this regard. You get to the end, Paul actually is as weak as he ever was. The trouble hasn't gone away. But because he now knows Christ's power will be magnified through his weakness, the very trial that once seemed so troublesome to him has become his favorite reason for boasting. A boast he would rather make than Talk about visions and revelations of heaven. Can you imagine that? To Paul, this was a better thing to talk about. If we knew, if you and I understood the sufficiency of God's grace and the inexhaustible energy of God's power, we would have a similar perspective on all of our own trials. May God give us that wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his faith and his faithfulness and his insight into suffering, our sufferings as well. May we carry the legacy of this great testimony and reflect it in our own lives. May we lean on your sufficient grace and may we rely on your infinite power as you empower us to be more faithful, more diligent, more holy, more bold in our testimony for Christ, we pray in his name.
Amen.